Welcome to the Faculty Coffee Break Podcast, hosted by the Center for Advancement of Faculty Excellence, or as we like to call it, the CAFE, at St. Francis College in Brooklyn, New York. Rooted in a long history of faculty achievement and commitment to student success at St. Francis, the CAFE promotes research, innovation, and high-quality academic engagement through an evidence-based, equity-minded approach to teaching, learning, and faculty development. My name is Dr. Molly Mann, and I'm the director of the CAFE and host of the Faculty Coffee Break podcast. Today, I'm delighted to share my conversation with Theo Ganji. Theo Ganji is a novelist and writing teacher based in Brooklyn. He's the author of acclaimed novels such as Bang Bang and A New Day in America. His latest novel, Kingston and the Magicians Lost and Found, is in development as a movie on Disney+. He writes far-out adventures that happen right next door. He directs the MFA program in creative writing at St. Francis College and lives in Clinton Hill, Brooklyn with his wife and son and their dog. His next book with Rucker Moses, Encounter at Owl Rock, is coming soon from Penguin Random House. In this episode, we discuss Professor Ganji's journey to making a full-time career as a writer, his thoughts on what it takes to become a great writer, and the intersections between teaching and writing. Let's get into the conversation. So you are a prolific novelist and writer, um, and I'm very uh, interested in how you came to how, how you came to your work. Uh, when did you become interested in writing? Oh, yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think there's like a couple key moments for, for writers or, you know, people kind of called to a certain thing. Um, you know, there was when I physically like started writing, which was, it was my sophomore year in high school and it was around a creative writing assignment actually. So it was in a classroom kind of setting. Uh, and I remember just being on a vacation with my folks and all I wanted to do was sort of be in this story in, in the space of it. And that was, I think, what got me, you know, into actually writing words and finding that as a sort of place I wanted to be, a headspace that I just wanted uh, to tuck into. Um, but I think, you know, sort of it happens emotionally, psychologically earlier with, you know, when you're first enthralled with the story, um, which actually happened, probably happens precognitive now that I'm thinking, of, I mean, not or pre-memory, right? That, you know, I have a, I have a three-year-old, so I'm watching him get enthralled with different things in you know spaces like that are like before earlier than anything I can remember um but what I can't remember is like the first stories that just like had me completely enthralled in my imagination to sort of um it was a the Disney Robin Hood movie with the the fox and and the little John the bear that was the like reuse of the blue bear and uh, I made a recording of that movie and I'd listen to it before I went to bed every night. So like, I still have it committed to memory, you know, um, pretty much the whole dialogue, the whole, you know, from start to finish, I could probably tell you all the dialogue and all the scenes. You know? And it didn't, at the time, that didn't feel like you're doing anything but scratching an itch that you couldn't kind of help but scratch. Um, but now I see that as like, oh, this was like my earliest version of, you know, just living in the space of a story indefinitely. And when I'm writing, I'm kind of returning to that, uh, to a part of that experience that was, that had to be really young. 
So where did you grow up and, and how do you feel like the, the place of, of growing up um, shows up in your stories and in your writing? Sure. Well, I grew up in, in New York City, Upper West Side of Manhattan. Um, and, you know, especially back then, like in the, you know, the, you know I was born in 77 and I was a young kid in the 80s. There was a sense that every block you turned on was a different universe, you know? Um, it's like you would, you know, I, I knew probably when I was nine, which streets to walk on and which not to, and, um, you know, how to get to the comic book store, <laughs> uh, how to not get robbed at the comic book store. There was like a really creepy stairwell and like all these stories of kids getting, you know, get kids getting robbed for their comic book money or their comic books. So that was, it was, it was an adventure just getting comic books. Um, and yeah, it was, there was. You know, I think in retrospect, it was like I was it was hard for me to process how much was going on all the time. Um, you know, the I was 86 in Amsterdam. There's a bus that runs all night. That I just was used to. I don't know. I, I didn't know any different. Right. Like this is just the noise is just perpetual out there. Um, and I remember seeing like fights from the window, you know, just watching this crazy stuff happening. Um, and all the sort of stages of New York City as it went through, you know, time and it sort of forgot it's it shed its last skin, forget, you know, moves on to the next. So I'm always in my writing, I'm always looking for like that block that has the intersections of different experiences and lived worlds and like when they collide. Um, I feel like that's where I grew up, where just different universes collide, like an inception point or something. Um and so that's kind of what I look for in <clears throat> stories I'm drawn to, you know, and why I think I've always wanted to jump from genre to genre and was never kind of just like uh, felt comfortable just setting my table in one seat um, and like thinking about how I could pull like elements from one genre and like crash them into some other kind of story, uh, that sort of thing. Um, and then just a the different cultural experience stuff I was exposed to I think seeps in um you know as my characters tend to be from you know they're usually city people but like from very different backgrounds and were your parents big readers or writers or creative people at all um neither of them were professionally creative but they were readers and they they both actually wrote a book they each wrote a book I should say um my mother was a psychotherapist. She wrote a book called Making Therapy Work with a couple of co-writers when I was a little kid. Um, and that was like a HarperCollins book. It was like a commercial book. You know? And then my dad kind of had this passion project that he did later. And uh, maybe I was in my 20s. He wrote a, a book about growing up in Bensonhurst and being an adult in New York City. It was sort of a thinly veiled kind of a little bit about his life, but a fantasy version of it. But they were really passionate about books, movies. So there was always a kind of conversation about this stuff around the house. That's great. And you've mentioned moving between different genres. Um, so you've, uh, your work crosses, you know, novels, short stories, graphic novels. You're working on, in uh, with Netflix on developing shows. Um, so can you talk a little bit about about that, about moving between different genres and um, how 
how you see your work as maybe multimedia in a, in a lot of ways? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting right there. Uh, I see sort of, you know, story as a pretty universal idea, um, but it's, it's an application uh, is, you know, well, I guess what we refer to as medium. So if we're talking about film or, or prose fiction, um, I think a lot of times, you know, the sort of cumulative effect of these stories is pretty universal. And that's why a lot of the best movies were great books or even decent books. Um, but I'm fascinated with the way each of those mediums work. And, you know, it's hard for me to even have a preference and well, I can't tell you that I like books better than movies or, or the other way around. I mean, the cool thing about a book is as a writer, you could you make the whole thing. And a movie obviously is you're relying on a whole bunch of other people, including someone else's money, presumably. Um, so you can't I can't just say, oh, I'm gonna make a movie and then it just happens tomorrow. And I can do that with a book basically. Um, but I love how these two things work. And I don't, while I don't think you could ever really take a book and just like one-to-one -one make it into a movie or a show, although sometimes they get pretty close and it works, um, you know, you do have to, you know, think how does this story best express on film uh, or on the screen? Or how do you, how do you best use, you know, uh, or the other way around, you know, you might, you know, see a movie and, you know, have to think about certain, like, who the narrator is, who's telling the story, right? It just kind of, it exists visually. Um, so there is definitely a lot of, like, movie works like this, book works like this, um, but I have both of these things so deep in my process that even kind of when I have an idea, I kind of see both versions. It's like, oh, you could tell this in this way with full narr narration as a prose and then here's how you could shoot this and here's how you could here's how you could sort of tease things around this with a camera in ways that you could never couldn't effectively do like uh it wouldn't work necessarily so it's not one-to-one -one, but like I just I love the way these things express themselves separately you know? yeah and your um your work Kingston and the Magicians Lost and Found um and then you have a sequel Kingston and the Echoes of Magic are being developed by Disney Plus right um so uh do you want to tell us a little bit about that story and and how that came to life for you and then how you're kind of reimagining that for the screen yeah um so you know, a couple, uh, I sort of linked up with a couple friends of mine who were, um, you know, kind of developing the story of this magician in Brooklyn. They, um, uh, you know, neither of them had ever, like, lived in Brooklyn. So, you know, they, they, they um, kind of needed another, you know, kind of voice in the mix that could kind of, um, you know, have that kind of authentic kind of, you know, drives the story. And so it was a lot of like, you know, structuring the thing as a book, but thinking about how is this best going to work? How is this best going to translate? So even in the structuring of that as a book, it was, there was a lot of thought as to making sure this was a tight movie. You know? um, and when 
you know, kind of as Disney's come on board and now they, there's a, a couple of screenwriters who are working on the script and we're acting as producers. So it's, it is sort of taking those applications like, all right, here's how we told the story with the, with this first person narrator. Um, now here are all these moments that work without the narrator. You know, here are all these, um, you know, sort of thinking about also because it was a middle grade book, you're very tied to the age of the narrator. Um, so Kingston was, you know, 12 years old. In the film version, you know, we kind of don't have those constraints. So some of the older characters get, have more to say and they can, they can speak in their own voices a little bit better, uh, differently than in the book. Um, and, you know, there's just some sort of story mechanisms that will work on the screen. So, you know, we were able to kind of introduce those and the screenwriters running with them. And it was also, I mean, it was already a, a collaborative process, but this now we've opened up from the three of us to uh, a screenwriting team and a whole team of producers. So now it's like, it's kind of wild. It's like you know, six people on a Zoom call all banging their heads on this, cracking the story. Um, and it's just a, it's a fascinating look at how all this comes together, how collaborative it really is. Wonderful. So you, uh, in addition to your own writing, you also have been instrumental in building the MFA program, the low residency MFA program at St. Francis College, and you teach in the literature writing and publishing department there. So can you talk a little bit about um, the evolution from, you know, writing your own work to then teaching others the craft of writing and and what how those how those two roles are similar how they're different and how they intersect and i remember seeing some like uh, it might have been a juno, juno diaz quote where he said something to the effect of like teaching does not help my writing in the slightest right and i remember thinking about that quote while i was there was like one particular activity repetitive activity that you do like in, in the service job like that i think it was refilling the pellegrino bottles right in the in the fridge in the in the bar okay and i probably did this walk this ritual walk of many ritual walks however many times a night where i just like, grab a case and i'm like there's no way anything could be less helpful to my creative process than grabbing this crate of pellegrino bottles right <laughs> so you know when i started investing in teaching i was like you know, the fact that you're spending so much time thinking about the process, thinking about even just reading is, is helpful to your writing process, you know? Um, so I felt maybe, you know, you know, Juno Diaz or whoever the, the writer, very accomplished writer who said that maybe never had a restaurant to have, I don't know. Um, so teaching, I think it was a, it was natural because what, Part of what we want, I think, when, when we have, when we're really drawn to something, I think very rarely do we know exactly like what we want to do in that field, but we just, we want to be closer to that thing. We want to spend time in the world of that thing. Um, and anything that gets us, you know, into that headspace is, is where we want to be. And then like the more you learn about the writing world, the more like, say, oh, here's a specific kind of role that maybe suits my, um, 
you know, my personality and my needs and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, so it was like being closer to books and writing as a teacher was a positive step for sure. Um, and then I think it became this kind of challenge, which was, you know, how to teach sort of in, in a literature course, which is a very analytical approach to writing and maintain your kind of create your creative ideas. Because in a way they're a little, anti they, they, they butt heads a little bit. Um, you know, if you're thinking about a book as the way it was written and how to write one, it's different than interpreting the writer's meaning or, or looking at social, you know, kind of currencies and trends around a, a work and, and how and why it exists. Um, so then when we, you know, we started the creative writing program, it was, um, you know, I, I mean, I taught creative writing for, for a while, but the, you know, the, the level of it and the attention to it changed a lot, pretty dramatically, because the students were really motivated. You know, older folks who were in the workforce, or at least you know had graduated college and had a little of that like, uh, whatever I do next, I have to mean it kind of feeling. You know, which is different than the way an undergraduate you take an elective. You know, you're just like, hey, let me try this on, see if I like it. As opposed to like, I must be good at this, and I have to figure out how to do it. And um, so. You know, in the years of running the MFA program, you know, teaching these really motivated students, um, you go deeper and deeper into like reflecting on your own process. Like, wait, how do I do this? And how do I teach? You know, it's one thing to kind of like try to awaken the creativity in, you know, in someone who's kind of just dilly dally uh, or tried this and that. <clears throat> but it's another thing to like really kind of put, put yourself in that kind of you know, start being more reflective about your own creative process and how do I best impart stuff that I've learned in the sort of years that I've sort of, you know, just been focused on, on the writing. Um, and, you know, what's the best kind of way to introduce that, either that knowledge or um, really perspective. A lot of it is, is awakening, you know, a writer's or creative's perspectives. So that's been, you know, really rewarding. And, and I feel like we are getting better and better at it at the program. Yeah, I can see how, um, you know, switching between teaching literature and, and creative writing can be challenging. And also how reading can really help the writing process. But I can also see how it can be, um, it can maybe get in the way sometimes. Do you ever feel that either reading other works or um, getting deeply, you know, uh, involved working with your students on their work. Do you find that it's difficult to kind of switch gears then to going back to your own writing? Um, do you have to kind of filter out, you know, what, what other ideas are, what other works are from your own? Um, not really. I, no, I think uh, if anything, when I get, you know, sometimes, sometimes I'll, I'll have, a, you know, maybe a student where I feel, um, ah, they could just do X, Y, Z. And I'm, you know, trying to communicate that. And that will, if anything, unleash me when it's time to do my own thing. Because I'm realizing, like, I'm sort of creatively working through something on their behalf that I actually can work through on my own, you know, in my own uh, work. And, and really, I don't know, just reading 
I think it can't be under uh, es- uh, under appreciated on how much you need to do it if you're going to be any good at this. Um, and I do think we're in a little bit of like generationally, um, students are more and more interested in writing and less and less interested in reading. Um, and, you know, I think they write more in their daily lives. They, you know, they, you know they're like, they're familiar with, you know, with a kind of, uh, you know, a public sort of written voice because they all have social media in the way that, you know, when I was a kid, no one had that kind of persona mentality. Um, but I do think that the kids that, that they come in, even talented writers, they aren't reading as much as they need to, to be good at writing and creating a book. Like you can only, there's only like, I, don't know, I usually use cooking as a like the metaphor for writing, but like there's lots of good metaphors. But like if you want, you know, if you, you need to know how the food is supposed to taste, you know, to make the dish right. Um, and it's like, it's like, sure, like maybe you just like, you have this really great idea about how this one cheese pairs with, I don't know, ketchup or something. And that might be a cool thing, but kind of like until you kind of have a repertoire of like, oh, here's how dishes are supposed to taste. Like it's never going to quite, you're never going to quite make something that is equivalent to those dishes, you know, and much like with eating, when a reader reads a book, they know right away whether they're satisfied or taste good, you know, and to us, we're on the other side, we're like with the, working with the ingredients and we're sweating in the kitchen and our taste buds are all out of whack. And, you know, we don't know, does this taste good or is this just the salt from my skin? You know, it's hard. The only way to do it is to just, you have to read a ton. You have to have a whole back catalog of references and voices and approaches to to, to a story situation um, in order to know what even your options are. So in some ways, when I'm out, uh, when I'm a little, when I feel a little out of rhythm, it's because I haven't been reading enough lately, you know? Um, and the way I get myself back in rhythm is by picking up another author who's sort of another book that's sort of in the sphere of what I'm doing. And that kind of like reignites the sort of the narrative voice in the head and it can, it can start flowing. But I think if you remove books from, from the writer's, you know, process, then, you know, you just have your sort of empty thought, pro- you know, the thought process as it comes out and it's, it's not going to be, but if we're in, you know, in a fiction writing workshop, you use movies as like your bigger comps and references. Oh, it's sort of like, you know, Die Hard meets, you know, the Santa Claus or something um and you're like okay I'm in I know what that means right but in order to figure out how to execute it you have to find the it's usually a a, almost a whole tradition of books that have been hacking away at whatever your idea is you know and it's sort of like it's your job once you have an idea to find those books you know and I, I tell them, it's like, you don't even have to read every single one of them or all of them, um, but you probably need to read a little bit of all of them, right? Like you, you know, it's a sort of difference reading like a writer and reading like a reader. You know, if I'm reading like a reader, it's like, yeah, I'm going to sit and finish the whole book and that kind of thing. Um, but if there's like been, you know, 10 books in my genre published in the last five years, and I just want a sense of what each writer's approach to the voice was. Um, how they handled whatever bit of world building or mystery, then, you know, I'm liable to just, you know, 
read a read a bunch of sections out of each one of those and because you're really just reading to learn how to make a thing as opposed to you know reading for the sheer enjoyment of of reading the whole story so that's a hard that one's really hard for for younger writers to even think about but i think if we you know once you're kind of like you know thinking um professionally or like you have one job you might have you know like right now i have two jobs two pretty different books i'm working on effectively very close together like when they're going to be delivered i'm not sure you know so in order to kind of like i have like my stack of reference materials for those books um and i kind of got to bounce around a little bit you know i'm really um you know reading until i feel like i get it and then moving on you know um so that one's always tough like no i have to finish the book or i, I or i don't want to mark my books that one's crazy you have to own these things you know you have to like it's like getting past that maybe that's the writer difference versus like the uh you know um it's like these are things to be broken down and consumed in order to fuel your ability to create them and that's how you need to look at that maybe that takes a little bit of the romance out of it um so tell me more about the creation of the mfa program and your role in that um how did that idea begin and what was the process there sure um I think it began back, you know, with, uh, you know, uh, Tim Houlihan, I believe, was the provost at the time. I think, you know, the idea came from, you know, he has a lot of writer friends. And so one of my old teachers from, from Columbia was a friend of his. And so he's kind of in that world. And I think it was really the awareness that there was no low residency program in New York. Um, and that. Brooklyn in particular had taken in the last, you know, at the time, 15 years, um, and definitely to this day, had this incredible literary influence. Um, and, you know, we felt there was an opportunity at St. Francis, um, you know, to nurture that and, and for that to kind of guide us forward. You know, we had to kind of build it from scratch. Um, you know, you get a proposal through the, the state, uh, you design the program sort of in abstract and, you know, other schools can object. They can say, no, you can't have this because um, nobody objected. And then it was building sort of the faculty and identity. Uh, so I'm pretty, I think the first, the first thing I did was connect with Marlon James, um, you know, who's, you know, just a brilliant writer and teacher and, and also has the, had the approach as a kind of both a literary writer who, um, who thoroughly embraces, you know, genre ideas and, 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 and tropes and turns them um, into his own kind of thing. He was someone who could speak to a lot, the type of writers I felt like we would attract and that I felt it was important to attract sort of, you know, as we tend to have now, <clears throat> We tend to have like if we have two fiction groups, be one with a little more of a literary bent and another with a little more genre, um, for lack of a better term. But like, you know, we're working on more recognized formal structures like sci-fi or fantasy or mystery genre. Um, so, uh, you know, Marlon was kind of, you know, was so great as almost, you know, like a he was like a shorthand for someone who understands that. So I think that it's like just having him connect to the program 
helped uh, us identify ourselves to to the public as like, you know, um, our approach and like kind of writing we want to work on. So, you know, we get we get folks interested in, um, you know, literary fiction, fantasy, you know, both based on Marlon, you know. Um, so, you know, that was huge. Um, and then just kind of, you know, putting a team together, folks in poetry, in, in uh, you know, uh, dramatic writings. We had, you know, Felice Bell in poetry and um, Mahogany Brown and that Jag Poetic um, that, you know, kind of think work with our voice. Um, uh, ben Snyder, who was our uh, dramatic writing coordinator for a while, um, had some amazing talks with filmmakers and playwrights. Uh, and, you know, that kind of helped us identify ourselves and, and, you know, show potential world kind of type of program we are. So it's been really gratifying seeing it grow and, and, the, and just the really unique kind of voices that seem to be interested in working with us. And you mentioned that it's a low residency program. So what does that mean? And what are the advantages of that? Sure. Yeah, it's a, so low residency means you do basically two stints or residencies a year. And in the meantime, you're working distance. So the advantages are you can have a full-time job and a lot of our students do. Um, and, you know, especially for writers, you know, it's not like, it's not like law school where you, you know, you put everything into this and then you get a job based on this degree, you know, while you can, you know, you can teach at college level with an MFA, um, you know, chances are your writing ambitions are a lifelong uh, proposition. Um, you know, your, the way that you piece together a writing career is very different than anything a straightforward kind of program can do. And, you know, you should not give up your day job to be a writer um, until someone is like, here's day job type money and to write, you know? Um, and that can take 10 years. So really the, you know, look, either it's, you know, either the writing career is for someone willing to work a job as, as you write, or you're just, you're just independently wealthy. You don't have to worry about it. Um, and, for a lot of folks who, who dream of writing as a career who aren't independently wealthy, that's not an adequate answer, right? There, there has to be some other way. And it's like, yeah, you just have to work harder um, than some other folks, but it's doable. And there's no one way it works. You know, the program is really here to give them tools, figure it out. And the advantage of being low res is your, you know, we're respecting that process. You know, a, a traditional program, I think effectively, it exists, I think, mostly to get catch kids right out of college who don't have a career to start just yet. You know what I mean? Um, which was, you know, uh, for me, that's clear why I was drawn to the restaurant business to begin with, was because that was the only job I could have and be an MFA student, you know? Um, the way I was, the way I was doing it, you're in class all day. And then, you know, so I was working at evenings in the MFA program. It, 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 I think it respects the reality of this industry. 
um, and it sort of trains you to be a working writer in a sense, like you are working and writing. <laughs> it also seems like it would allow many more voices to um, come come to the fore because you're you're providing access to many more people to um, to have writing as a career. So wonderful. Uh, and I know the the programs had many wonderful speakers. You mentioned Marlon James. Uh, I know you also had Jamal Brinkley um, and many students whose projects have really gotten off the ground. I mean, we're all excited about Keith Miller and his project Pretty um, recently. So um, very, very exciting stuff in the MFA program at St. Francis. Um, and thank you so much, Theo Candy. It was wonderful to talk to you about your work. Um, so if uh, folks who are listening uh, would like to find you and, and read more about uh, the work that you have out there, where can they, where can they find that? Uh, well, anything on book stuff, it's, you know, theoganji.com. Um, you know, I'm on, I'm mostly on Instagram, uh, Theo Black Angie. Um, and yeah, if anyone's interested in the MFA program, uh, sfc.edu slash MFA, um, you can check us out or reach out tganji at sfc.edu. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for talking with thank me you, today. Mom. Thank you for listening to the Faculty Coffee Break podcast hosted by the Center for Advancement of Faculty Excellence at St. Francis College. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll share it with a friend or colleague and leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to know more about today's episode, please visit our webpage for show notes and transcripts. And join us again soon for more conversations about innovative pedagogy, curriculum design and assessment, and faculty development. The primary purpose of the Faculty Coffee Break podcast is to educate and share ideas for teaching and learning, curricular and co-curricular design, and faculty development. The podcast does not constitute advice or services, and the views expressed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect those of St. Francis College.